Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Medical Services at the San Antonio Spurs, Phil Coles. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Valve Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest and most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to episode 95 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got a great chat with Phil at the San Antonio Spurs. So just before I get into the, the chat with Phil, um, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance and Coach Me Plus for sponsoring the episode today. So as part of the bi-weekly uh, sponsorship with um, Coach Me Plus, they're just going to provide a couple minute segment which is going to really complement uh, the weightlifting derivatives chat I had with Tim Suckermel a couple of weeks ago. So I hope you enjoy both the little segment from Coach Me Plus and the uh, the full interview with Phil Coles. So I'll chat to you soon and hope you enjoy. In this segment, we're going to talk about weightlifting derivatives and their application to performance training. In team sports, especially team sports that have um, implements in the athlete's hand, golf, baseball, tennis, hockey, lacrosse, all sports that require a really good amount of wrist health, sometimes turning the bar over uh, has a cost-benefit analysis that sometimes the benefit, the cost outweighs the benefit. Uh, I'm never, I'm not saying that you should never turn the bar over with these athletes, but especially in season, it might be beneficial to do weightlifting derivatives. There's been a lot of work that's come out in the last few years from the likes of Brad DeWeese and Tim Sukumel, Um, and Brad's coined the term of surfing the curve, where you can surf the force velocity curve without turning the bar over. And some of these weightlifting derivatives include things like cleans or snatches from the power position or the mid-thigh position, whichever phrase you're familiar with, snatching or clean pulls from the top of the knee or just below the knee or even from the floor. So it's like a deadlift, but then you have the transition period, the double knee bend, where you come into um, the power position and it's just like a clean, but instead of turning the bar over, you just shrug your shoulders. And this is, I found to be very beneficial, especially in season where there's a high level of fatigue, where the wrist health is so much more important for athletes that have um, implements in their hand. And so this allows you to get your overload, um, whether it be for high force and low velocity or high velocity and then um, a lower amount of force, depending on whatever your goal of the training session or the training block may be. 
and it allows the athlete to save off some of the wrist harm that could uh, be incurred um, by turning the bar over. Another benefit that I found with weightlifting derivatives is it's a time saver. Uh, when you go to turn the bar over, there's a certain amount of skill that's involved and a certain amount of uh, mentality that athletes, I think, have um, when they need to pull themselves under the bar. And by doing the weightlifting derivatives, you get the triple extension, you get the push through the floor, pull, however you want to phrase it, you get that stimulus, but you don't have to worry about turning the bar over and you can um, spend your time on getting different movements, different exercises, or some different uh, points within the training session. So hopefully um, give the, uh, you can give the weightlifting derivatives a try. Um, check out some research from Tim Sukamel and Brad DeWeese on different weightlifting derivatives and how they may help your program. To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to CoachMePlus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's CoachMePlus.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So, got a really uh, exciting guest on this evening or this afternoon in uh, in Phil's case, in Phil Coles coming from Texas. So, welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Phil. Good night, How are you? I'm absolutely great. Yeah, I'm good, mate. Um, so, for anyone that doesn't know who you are, I uh, just want to give a little bit of uh, information on yourself um, and maybe what you're currently doing. Okay, um, I'm an Australian, obviously, although I'm in Texas at the moment. Um, I'm physiotherapist trained and, and sports physiotherapist in particular. Uh, I've evolved, I guess, over my career through a number of sports. Uh, I now work in a management role, uh, yeah, leading a, a combined performance and medical team. Uh, I, I started in Australian football or soccer, as they, they call it over here in the UK, in the US. Um, I worked with the national team for a number of years and then moved into European football where I worked for a few years. So I returned to Australia to work in rugby league, uh, which was the sport I actually grew up with. Uh, and then um, by, yeah, by way of events, ended up over here with the San Antonio Spurs in Texas uh, in the NBA, which for me was a different challenge, a different sport, you know, a different culture, but, but one that I really enjoyed. So what was your, what was your role at Liverpool? So at Liverpool, I was uh, head of medical services. Um, so I was working as a hands-on uh, physiotherapist, but also managing uh, all the all the physiotherapists, masseurs, anything to do with uh, the medical side. Uh, working hand in hand with uh, with Darren Burgess, who was who was leading the performance team at that time. Okay, that was going to be my next next question. Did that? So did it, did he? Who who came first? We came together. Okay. Uh, yeah, we were, we were actually with the national team together in, in the two similar roles. Uh, and then we went, you know, essentially as a team to Liverpool with Dr. Bruckner as well. And Dr. Bruckner was the the department lead, I guess, in, in combining the medical and performance team. And, and I, read, I, I led the medical arm and, and Berger led the uh, performance arm. Okay. So how, how long ago was it that you uh, went to San Antonio? Uh, I came here in September 2014, so the last two full seasons I've done, and, and yeah, we'll, we're now, I'll, I'll now move into my third season next year. Okay, nice. So the first thing I want to um, chat about is a recent article that you put out with regards to high-performance teams, and it's something that I discussed recently on, a, on another podcast kind of off, off the air with the, the kind of popularity of the, the term high-performance. 
Um, but I just wanted to get into a bit of depth on on your um, first on the article, then you know, your views on it a little bit deeper. What, what's your kind of uh, definition of a of a high performance team? I guess yeah, I'm not too hung up on the terminology of a high performance unit or high performance team. I think it's the idea that you've got athletic development staff, you know, predominantly strength and conditioning coaches, you've got sports scientists and you've got uh, sports medicine staff. And the grouping of those three together to work as one group hand in hand in an integrated way is really important for, for the success of each of them, you know. And the grouping of those three areas uh, to me makes up you know what you could call a high performance unit you know but that's that's essentially the people within a club who are there to ensure that players can physically perform to their maximum level as often as possible mm-hmm. so one thing that you one thing that kind of stood out for me in the in the article was the the setting of goals for the high performance team do you just want to talk to talk to us a little bit about Firstly, how you go about that, um, how maybe you've gone about that in the past or maybe how you go about that now or just your general views on on the setting of goals within the, the high-performance team itself? I think this, the setting of goals is, is really important uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, we're in a very – if you're in professional sport and I've been you know, very lucky to, to be full-time in professional sport, different sports for the last 10 years or, or so at least um, – you know, it's a very results-driven business and changes can happen uh, at a club or you know, a team because, you know, a team didn't perform well in a particular season uh, in terms of, you know, results on the field or on the court or on the pitch. And when that's the case, you know, sometimes changes are made that aren't always for the best. You know, sometimes those changes are, are a little bit too reactive. So by setting goals that, are more defined to what we can specifically contribute to. Uh, we can be a little bit more fairly accountable to our programs. You know, so you know, I always say that team results and player availability are the two overriding goals of a high performance unit. You know, we contribute. You know, we're not the most important people to contribute to whether the team wins or not. You know, the talent of your coaches and your players is the overriding factor there. But we certainly contribute in some way to helping that. Uh, and of course, we contribute in some way to, to keeping players available to play. So there are overriding goals, but because there are so many influences on those goals that are out of our control, we need to have more specific goals at each step in our process. And then if we have those specific goals, it allows us to be much more objective about if we're achieving them and to be much more accountable in a fair, in a fair way. So, so how many, how detailed are you getting with these goals? I mean, you hear a lot about when you come at the end of the season, there's kind of injury stats, and obviously people are jumping on the the kind of Leicester City uh, bandwagon, and that's getting obviously a lot of publicity. And then, what what do you kind of judge? How do you judge yourself as a as a team at the end of the season? Um, you're looking at different aspects of of the season, and what gives you what make makes you give yourselves a kind of pat on the back. Um, well, we try not to give ourselves too many pats on the back because that's the, that's the first step to setting yourself up for a fall um, as soon as you're happy with how well you did something. Um, I mean, the big picture goals are there for everyone to see, you know, what was what was the team's injury rates and what was the team's results. And so, of course, we look at them and, and we try to look at them even a little bit more specifically to say, okay, um, 
yeah, it's not just teams availability, but it's quality of players who are unavailable. So in our stats here, we present our availability relative to everyone else in the league. We present our availability or the cost of our unavailability in terms of you know dollars paid to players who weren't available compared to everyone else in the league. And in US sports, it's a little bit unique because that information is, is publicly available. Um, we have a scouting system who obviously... Uh, give performance ratings to players so we can also compare then loss of potential performance rating due to injuries. So we look at, you know, bigger picture to compare ourselves against the league, um, you know, in a number of ways. And that's important without a doubt. But to me, more important is that, you know, all all the processes we put in place to try and achieve those results uh, have individual goals along the way. You know, if we decide... um, that you know a particular strengthening exercise is going to make our players more durable for the sport we're we're playing. Then we need to have a way to measure is that particular exercise firstly getting done you know regularly enough with it with players, and then are we seeing objective improvements because of that? And if we see those two boxes ticked, then we can we can assume that they're going to contribute to our overall result, which is obviously what most people are clutching at. Um, but you know, if those two boxes are ticked, you know, we can be relatively happy. Now, if we tick those two boxes year upon year and our overall result is still poor, then, of course, we need to change the, the sub-goals that we're ticking along the way. Um, but we try to, to make everything as systematic and as objective as possible um, to help provide the best environment to achieve that overall result. And while the overall result is what we all want and what we all need, it's not the it's not the defining result for the success of our group. So how much how much um, influence do do your players or current players or in the past get on on defining their own goals? Uh, they get a lot. I mean, I try if we're talking about individual player development uh, in terms of yeah physical development of a player, or if we're talking about rehab uh, post injury. I try to involve the player very specifically in, in the goals that we're setting for them because I've learned over you know, time and with experience that the more engaged a player is, the more likely they are to achieve those goals. And if they've had some input into that, you know, they're clearly going to be more engaged. So, um, you know, we, in the role I have here where I'm trying to coordinate, manage the group as a whole, you know, it, it allows me to be a little bit more hands-off uh, with players to to sit with players individually, you know, multiple times throughout a season, and have a look at them from an objective standpoint. Present you know what data we have to them on where they're at physically at any given time. Talk to them about where they see their areas of improvement. You know, talk to them about the feedback I'm getting from coaches about their game and what the coaches want to see them get better at, and then try to get to some specific endpoints that are going to help them achieve that, you know, some specific endpoint goals that are going to help them achieve, you know, the, the physical level that, that they or and or the coaches want them to be at. Um, and it's, for me, really important to have them involved in that. And I'm lucky in the role I have here and, and the fact that we have a small playing group and we have a fantastic playing group of guys who are really open to this type of discussion, that we can have good, open, honest conversations, you know, consistently throughout the year so they're all aware exactly uh, where they're at and, and where they've got to get to. 
So when it comes to athletic development um, of the players that you're currently working with, how do, how do you go about it? Um, and you've mentioned in another article that's, that's coming out um, later on about the obviously demands of the game and, and the amount of games that you're playing compared to the amount of time that you're practicing. How do you manage that from an athletic development perspective with that such a fixture um, kind of fixtures packed in the NBA? Yeah, obviously it makes it it's a challenge. Uh, you know how to create you know, positive athletic development when you're limited uh, in terms of you know, scheduling of sessions. Um, so again, yeah, we try to approach it in a very individualized way, and with a smaller squad, that's that's not too hard to do. But we can look at each player. Um, you know, we can set their goals and where we want them to be, and we can look at the upcoming schedule uh, and have a pretty good idea of when and where each of those players is likely to be under heavier loads and, and periodized sessions appropriately around that. You know, it's a lot more difficult to do when you've got four games, five games in a week than it is when you've got one game in a week. Um, but that's the life we have. You know, so we work around games. You know, we work around times that suit players. You know, we rarely do a group session as a whole. Almost all our sessions are done one-on-one. Um, and then we try to use the off-season more effectively, and that's something that, you know, typically, in fact, you know, by the players' CBA, we can't ask them to do anything over their off-season. You know, their off-season is their time, uh, and you get an official three-week pre-season to work in, which obviously is extremely limiting. Um, but because of the good relationships we have with most of the players and because the players have mostly bought into, you know, what we're trying to achieve and they understand individually what they're trying to achieve, you know, we can give them good feedback and we can give them good options to to work on that, on their specific targets, their specific goals in, in that time when they're, you know, when they're officially off on holidays. So another thing you mentioned in the in the second article um, is about educating and advising without interfering. And that's obviously um, in terms of coaches in these in these kind of windows that you're um, plugging players into that the maybe the, the load's not going to be as high. How are you um, doing them kind of things with the coaches, as in educating and advising, without um, without kind of coming across as if you're trying to impose on what they're doing? Yeah, and that's firstly, I mean, if you came here to to the Spurs, who are one of the most successful you know organisations in American sporting history, and and have you know, an absolute legend of a coach, and you know, I've had a tremendous amount of success for me to come in and start in any way influencing or, or you know trying to um change his approach would would just not be successful you know it wouldn't be appropriate and it wouldn't be successful so having the coaches on board uh is really important and in, in my opinion the way we do that is by you know it, it is a process of learning and getting to know them and then getting to know us and them understanding that the more information that they give us and the closer we work together the more effective we can do at our job you know and and them giving information to us about what they want to see from different players and then us sitting down with them and saying, okay, to achieve, to get this player where you want them to be, we need to work you know, on X, Y, and Z over this time frame. Now, given our schedule, that means we want to work in this, you know, this component here and the next component next week and so on. Um, and the more we can have an integrated approach with them, you know, we're, we're far more effective than at getting the work done. So just moving on to a situation that you obviously find yourself in at the moment, um, which is which is recruitment. What what do you see um, 
how do you see the the high performance team fitting into into the kind of recruitment picture? I think recruitment is is first and foremost the at the most basic level. It, it's almost the most important part of of any injury prevention program. You know, if you're not recruiting players who are suitable uh, for the sport you're playing, for the schedule you're playing, for the style, you know, technical or tactical approach, tactical approach you want to take, um, it's going to be very difficult to to keep those players available to play. So recruitment is is really important and and the high performance group should have an influence in that. Now I qualify that by saying recruitment should always be coach or general manager, depending on your sport and your club, driven. It should always be driven by talent and by team needs. It should never be driven by likelihood of durability. Um, but likelihood of durability in your individual unique situation should be information that's given uh, clearly uh, to those decision makers, you know, to the coach and to the GM who have to weigh that up against the talent level of any individual they're looking and their you know, possibility to contribute positively to the team. You know, there's no point in, in me advising them to to choose a player because you know he's got a physical profile that, that is going to be very durable in our situation if he just doesn't have the talent or he doesn't have the skill set that, that is going to contribute to the team. You know, the coach may say, well, you know, player X has is much more likely for our team to be more beneficial. And we can advise that player X is also, you know, maybe more likely to get injured, may struggle with the environment that he's going to come into, the schedule. Um, but we give that advice to the coach and, you know, hopefully the coach takes it on board and, and he makes a decision based, you know, based on the overall team needs. So how difficult is that? Obviously, you explained your situation with regards to getting your hands on certain players before they actually have the potential to be uh, named in your squad. In something like a, um, like a non, um, pretty much a non-American sport, like a rugby or a football, you're obviously not been able to do that and you're not going to be able to get your hands on these guys before the coach signs them. You're obviously just going to get minimal data, whether it's looking on the internet for previous history. How, how, how did you manage that uh, side of recruitment in them, in the sports that you've previously worked in? You know, if you don't get direct access to the players, um, it's obviously more difficult and you have to uh, qualify any of your recommendations you know, with the open and honest advice that you know, you're going on the information you've been able to garner. Um, but there's lots of information out there. You know, there's certainly lots of information on player players' past history of availability, uh, and that's important to have. Now, that on its own is not the be-all and end-all. You have to consider, you know, if they have been available or unavailable, what were the reasons behind that? You know, was there particular injuries they have that are likely to be recurrent injuries? Uh, is there any obvious or any likely um, risk factors that are that are present and are they modifiable or are they not? Is the social situation that the around the player, the support systems around the player, likely to change when you take him from the environment he's in to the environment you're in? Um, is the role a player played in a team previously uh, likely to change when you take him from his current team into your team? And, and how will that affect his, his physical um, performance levels or availability levels? So a lot of it is judgment calls, but you've got to look beyond. You know, your first step is to find out their past history of availability. Then your second step is to delve into that a lot deeper um, 
yeah, in every aspect you can find, and it's talking to coaches and players who've played with him and players who've been at that club, and it's having good relationships with other clubs, you know, and spending time when you get a chance going to other clubs and talking to other staff and, and the better relationships you have with them, the more you understand their individual environments and how that may differ from yours and how that may affect players who are moving from one to the other. Um, and it's an ongoing process that, you know, the more you can learn about them and the more you can learn about the places they've been and the more you understand about the place you're currently at, you know, the better advice you can give. But, you know, ultimately you're giving a recommendation, you know, on a level of risk of a player, it's not an exact science um, and it's not the, de the defining or the deciding factor on whether that player should get signed by the club or not. It's just, it's, you know, it's your expertise or the expertise of your group uh, combined uh, to provide, you know, another vital piece of information that the coach or the general manager can use in making the decision. Mm -hmm. So we, we've kind of chatted... Um injury prevention quite a bit and obviously that's coming on to your, your second article that, I'm, that I've mentioned a couple of times and you've you've got a little um, a little pyramid there uh, that I'm just seeing in front of me with with player recruitment as we've discussed at the bottom do you just want to talk to us about what moves up that pyramid and maybe a little bit um, a bit of information on each one and, and your kind of views on it yeah it's it's something I put together you know originally to talk to the GM here about to give him a good understanding of you know, how we can be successful long-term in, in keeping, you know, in preventing injuries at a club and trying to make him understand, or you know, he certainly understood anyway, but trying to trying to make everybody involved understand that, yeah, the high-performance group, unit, team uh, ultimately takes responsibility for injury prevention. Uh, but everyone in the club has a level of influence, you know, and, and this is the key for everyone to understand that, you know, the best high-performance unit in the world if they're working in isolation or they're working without support of their coaches or without support of their recruitment team, they won't be the most successful. So the idea of putting the pyramid together was not necessarily to say that you know, one component of preventing an injury is more important than another, but to say we've got to get the foundations right and we've got to understand that while we lead the process, while my, my staff will lead the process and we will educate people and influence people as much as we can everyone contributes at some stage in this triangle as you mentioned it starts with player recruitment and recruiting or retaining a list of players that are suitable for your individual environment and you know certain players may thrive at some teams and may struggle at others and that may be nothing to do with the performance team it may be directly to do with the performance team you just don't know but sometimes you know you can you can get a, a handle or, or, or some analysis of that and understanding it as part of understanding that Injury prevention starts with recruiting the right list of players or retaining the right list of players is important. The second step up for me is, is load monitoring. That is a, a hot topic at the moment. Obviously, there's some people who have done you know, some, some great work looking at you know, acute versus chronic loads and et cetera, and, and without a doubt, it's extremely important. The reality is that every individual athlete has a level of load that they will break at. Now, for some players, that level of load, you know, and, you know, depending on how you want to define it, and, you know, is extremely high. And for other players, it's, very, it's low. But understanding that every player has that breaking point and how far we can, how firstly we can improve that in every player individually and then how we can make the coaches understand that level in each individual and therefore influence them to use them more appropriately uh, is the next most important step. You know, if we're not... If we're recruiting great players, but we're putting them under 
ridiculous loads that, that certain players clearly aren't going to manage, then whatever else we do isn't going to matter. They're still going to break down. Um, so, yeah, you get your playlist right, you get your load monitoring systems right, and, yeah, clearly that's, you know, a podcast or 20 on its own <laughs> to discuss the pros and cons of the best way to do that. And, yeah, that's not, not what I'm here to do. But, yeah, that, that's for me the next step, you know. The next step up the pyramid is, you know, you've got your players, you're, you're managing their loads well, is trying to improve that through athletic development, you know. Fitter, stronger uh, players are less likely to get injured. You know, you can improve their load tolerance by making them better athletes. Um, and clearly, you know, that's your strength and conditioning team and your sports science team take the lead in that. Um, and it's vitally important in preventing injury. From there, and, and this will probably, you know, could probably stir a bit of debate, you know, I put that uh, as a foundation for movement efficiency. Um, moving in, in, a, in, in an efficient way can clearly make you less susceptible to injury. Now, a lot of people would argue that they should be reversed, that if you can't move in an efficient way first, you shouldn't be tried to, you know, you shouldn't be focused on developing them athletically, and, and they can make a reasonable point. I understand that. My personal opinion and my personal experience is that some players who don't move well can still cope very well. Um, but some, but if a player is not fit enough or strong enough, they will almost certainly break down. And, and that, that's how I reason having athletic development as the third step in a period, and, and then moving to a movement efficiency. Um, but certainly in a in an integrated professional elite sporting team, improving players' movement efficiency is is vital and it's something we spend a lot of a lot of time on um from there you know you've got you've you've, you've selected the right players you manage their loads well you've made them better athletes you've made them more efficient your next step is to consider is there advantage in structured injury prevention programs um and that really depends very much on your environment if you're doing a lot of your other things well you know, they may become a little bit superfluous because you might have covered a lot of the uh a lot of the issues that they're addressing through your through your other programs, through your movement efficiency or your athletic development or your load monitoring programs. Any situation by any club in the world in any sport, they're never perfect. And, and no matter what people want to say about their clubs, and, and I'll openly say it about all the clubs I've been at, none of them are perfect. Um, and getting adherence to certain programs, getting exposures to certain exercises that have proven preventative effects can be difficult, even in an elite environment uh, where players are full-time and getting paid big money and, and you know, you've got lots of staff, it can still be difficult. So if you're having problems with getting the amount of exposures you need, then integrating some structured injury prevention programs you know, can be an effective way to do that you know, as part of a warm-up or a cool-down or a team, a team program. Um, yeah, moving further up and yeah, you get into your injury assessment and injury rehabilitation. Now, this is at the top of the triangle because obviously this is after injury has occurred, but it's a big part of injury prevention still because, you know, when an injury has occurred, it doesn't necessarily mean that player is missing time. You know, but managing those players to keep their performance levels uh, at a level which they can still contribute positively to the team and without putting them at risk of making their injury worse, uh, managing them those well. And you know, if you can do those two at the same time, you can keep them playing, you can keep their performance levels up and you cannot make their injury worse. Then that's a really successful injury management, injury assessment, rehab management technique. Um, and that 
prevents you know further problems in the future. Um, and at the very tip of the triangle, and, and again, this is one that might you know people may disagree with, but but luck. Um, I think it's a small component. I think if you do everything very well um, over a longer period of time, you know, the teams who have the best programs will get the best results. Um, but like everything in life, you know, shit happens. <laughs> people, people get injured. Uh, everything can have been done perfectly. Uh, you've got to go back and examine why they got injured. You've got to um, accept and acknowledge any mistakes you made and try and address them in the future. Um, but, you know, life is life and sometimes things happen. And, uh, and again, I, I'm a little bit sceptical of anyone in my role or, or you know, any strength and conditioning coach or any physio who, who says that, that luck plays zero part. You know, I, I think we need to admit it plays a small part. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that. Appreciate that going down that, uh, down that pyramid. So just to um, hit on the, the movement efficiency uh, block that you've got pretty much kind of halfway down, what's your views on how that's assessed? Uh, maybe a, a global view, not not going into too much detail. What you guys do? Uh, well, that's th- a controversial topic. Um, that's why I chose it. <laughs> for me, yeah, my personal view is that it's it's a subjective measurement, and there's always error or issues with subjective measurement. I understand there's a lot of systems out there that try to make it more objective, uh, and I've used a number of them and. And, you know, we still use uh, probably a bastardization of a number of them and, and our, the philosophies of our own staff here now um, because trying to be more objective is a good thing and we all want to be more objective. My personal opinion is ultimately that's a subjective judgment. Uh, that's an individual coaching technique, you know, by the people working with them in the gym, by the physios working with them in the treatment room. Um, so I don't like to assess them in terms of, putting a number on that and using that number to in any way predict injury. That's, yeah, my personal opinion is that's a road that I'm not convinced is leading to, to success. Mm-hmm. So just one, I'm just really conscious of time because I know you're in a busy period at the minute. Um, another thing you mentioned in your first article with regards to the high performance team was the, the difficulty in aligning yourself with technical and tactical goals. How, how involved are you when it comes to trying to align your practices with with the kind of um, the, the targets and the aims of the technical staff? I think we're getting better and better. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, that, that, that comes through a process of integration with the technical staff, with the coaching staff, you know. And I, I try to learn as much as I can from them about what they're trying to achieve as a team and what they're trying to achieve from each individual player within that team. And then I try to question them on, well, how can we contribute to that? What can we do with this player to make him more effective in the way you want to use him? And I think when you pose it to most coaches that way, you know, they understand that I'm not trying to, to influence how that player is used in any way. I'm not trying to, uh, change how that player is used. All I'm trying to do is understand how what they want of a player in a particular situation and then how taking from that how I can help train him uh, to be able to achieve that in the in the best possible way and the safest possible way. Um, so it, it's you know it's an ongoing process of, of learning from the coaches and of, of them learning that we're we're there to serve them, we're there to help them 
by giving them the players who can do what they what they require in the, the technical and tactical way that they want to approach the game. So was there when you when you came into the NBA? Obviously, it's your it's your first kind of foray into basketball. How how long was your kind of bedding in period with, that you actually got familiar with the with the sport and the demands and and felt comfortable in that environment? Oh, I mean, it's ongoing. You know, you know, the first year, you know, everything that that we wanted to do was new for the club. So that takes time, and we made a deliberate. Uh, we had a deliberate approach to introduce things slowly because we wanted to integrate them well. You know, we didn't want to come in and make big changes and, and you know, particularly because we're coming into a team that's had such a great amount of success. Um, but I think it's the, the, the right approach anyway is to, is to be incremental and to make sure people understand why we want to make changes when we do. Um, for me personally, you know, I'm continuing to learn. I'm, I'm learning more about the sport every day and I've been, you know, on a basketball court every single day for the last you know, two and a half years and there's still every single day I'm learning something new. Um, but I'm lucky that some of the staff we have here in my team are, are very experienced in basketball and I'm lucky that we have one of the best coaching groups in, in world sport and, and they're you know, more than happy to, to sit and, and share their you know, views on the game and, and how we can contribute to that. And I constantly qualify yeah, nearly every conversation I have with a coach, you know, starts with, "Listen, I don't know anything about basketball, but <laughs> this is what we want. would like to see, you know, this player do. Will this help him do what you need him to do? You know, um, or you tell me what you need him to do. Okay, if we do X, Y, and Z, we might be able to do that better. And generally, that that works okay. Mm-hmm. How does that on, on the flip side of that? In, are you obviously in an environment where that that kind of long term approach is is possible? Obviously, in in some instances uh, you may or may not have been involved but that that long-term approach um almost i'm not saying it isn't isn't doable but because of the pressures and so i'm just taking the premier league because it's um it's it's happening in the minute or the, the euros happening in the minute that maybe long-term approach isn't possible because results dictate that if, if changes aren't made you're going to last five games or ten games yeah no, I mean I, I I understand that, and you know I've been in that situation, and uh, you know, having spent a lot of time in football, and um, that's one of the benefits here is, you know, it's a unique club that they're willing to to take a longer approach, um, and they've had that's to be fair the reason they've had such sustained success over the last twenty years, you know, but the, my thoughts now, you know, when I was younger. I would have been more inclined to, to, to you know, feel that pressure and, and be under in a rush to implement everything you wanted to do. Um, I think I've learned with experience that that's just not going to be successful, you know. So you really have no choice but to be systematic and to be incremental. And you, if you are process-driven and you can explain uh, and you can show with objective data where you're making changes and how that's going to be successful, um, then you put yourself in a good position to buy time for those changes to, to take effect. You know, if you're at a club that don't allow that time to happen, then there really is not a lot you can do. You can try to rush everything all at once and you might be lucky and maybe your team you know, over exceeds, you know, in a particular season and it gives you more time. But the reality is that when you do rush everything in at once, you're probably going to end up losing uh, a bunch of things that you want to do long term 
because it's not possible to, to make them all successful at one, you know, at one hit, you know. Um, so for me, no matter what environment I was, I think I would set out that this is the process we want to go through. This is where we want to be. This is how we're going to implement things over a period of time and we're going to do it in a way to try and ensure that each one is successful as opposed to trying to hit everything all at once because for me it's just it's a recipe for not not achieving long-term success mm-hmm. excellent well like i said uh 10 minutes ago i'm quite conscious of times i know you're a busy guy um where can people keep up to date with uh what you've got going on phil are you um are you on on Twitter and uh, I'm on Twitter, mate. But to be honest, I don't I don't contribute a whole lot. I tend to uh, read everyone else's ideas. Voyeur, a Twitter voyeur. I make a little bit of an effort every now and again, but it's I'm at Phil Cole's physio. Um, you know, and, and I'm happy to if anyone wants to contact me, I'm more than happy to try to you know build relationships and talk to as many people from as many different sports as possible because we can all learn from each other. Um, obviously, it's time dependent. Everyone's busy. Um, so yeah, people can contact me via Twitter and, and wherever possible, I'll try to, to, to build a relationship and, and learn from each other. Um, yeah, but I, I can't promise that I'm, I'm, you know, weekly tweeting out any words, any words of wisdom that are going to be of great help to people. <laughs> so that, that first article that I mentioned, that's still, uh, out in the open that I can, that I can link to on the site. Uh, yes, I guess so. It's uh, the Leeds in performance site. Um, so yeah, you can you can link that. That's no problem, and and that's a it's a fairly philosophical approach, um, but it you know it outlines my my views on on keeping our different uh, specialties together and, and making us work together in the most effective way. And when's that when's that second uh, injury prevention article looking to be out? Uh, it's going through review process okay. at the moment. Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll probably be out in the next month or so, hopefully. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate your time, Phil, uh, and I'll get let you get back to your, um, to your glass box. Thank you, mate. <laughs> All right, mate. Take care. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye. Bye, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 95 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Phil. If you want to keep up to date with everything else that's going on with the podcast, uh, some great guests coming over the next couple of weeks, you can follow me on Twitter at Pacey Perform uh, and all the uh, all the information with who's coming up next, what episodes are out, etc. will be on there. So thanks again for tuning in, your continued support, uh, and I'll speak to you soon.